Mindfulness Mode 143. You have to be able to let some things bounce off you. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Lankford. Thanks for tuning in, Mindful Tribe. On our last episode, we talked about mindfulness and finances with Deborah Williams of Financial Karma. She shared some excellent insights. Today, I'm talking with Aaron Watson, who's another person with great insights and focus. He has to be. He's a champion athlete in Frisbee sports. Settle back and enjoy Aaron's youthful energy. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled today to have Aaron Watson on the line. Hey, Aaron, are you in mindfulness mode? I am now. Happy to be here, Bruce. Thanks for the uh, the invitation. <laughs> That's good. Aaron Watson is a champion of Ultimate Frisbee, and he competes in disc golf, disc dog, which is also known as Frisbee dog, and other flying disc competitions. He's also a coach of Ultimate Frisbee, coaching his team to the championship game of the American Ultimate Disc League, also known as AUDL. At only 24 years old, Aaron is also creator and host of the popular podcast Going Deep with Aaron Watson, where he talks with a wide array of people about their passions, fears, and problems. So, Aaron, let's start off by talking about mindfulness. What does that word bring up in your mind? I would say that when I think about mindfulness as it pertains to me, I'm really thinking about the pace of my thoughts and how, how that relates to my ability to focus. So, for example, if you have thoughts rushing through your head and you're not really hanging on to any of them, that's a pretty anxious state. And that's when I know as an athlete, I'm not performing at a high level. But when I'm thinking at a, a, a reasonable pace and going through all my options, they, some people call it the flow state, that's when I perform my best. So to me, mindfulness is checking in with what pace am I thinking at and how is that affecting my performance? Well, that's a great description of it. And you've done so many interviews on your show. I wondered when you first started doing interviews, did you find you had to really hunker down and get focused on what the other person was saying in a really, uh, I don't know, concentrated kind of way? Certainly. And I, and I would say the challenge is a little bit more pronounced if the interview is not taking place in per, in person. So uh, as, as we're doing right now, Bruce, I'm just looking at a picture of you on my Skype uh, as I'm looking at my laptop and recording this interview with you. And as an interviewer, I found I'd have trouble when I wasn't making eye contact, when I wasn't seeing the facial expressions of someone else in staying focused on what their answers were. And that really hurts the quality of an interview. If, if the, the question that follows an answer isn't connected or in some way tied to the answer that was just received, it makes that conversation disjointed and less of a pleasant listening experience for the people with this conversation in their earbuds. So that was a big challenge for me. I think it's easier to stay present if that person's in the same room with you. But in the pursuit of just trying to get all the interesting people I can on my show, I, you know, I've been interviewing people in Australia, California, all across the world, and I can't always get in the same room with them. So that's definitely, you hit the, the nail on the head there. That's definitely been a challenge. Yeah, and I think the more connected you are, the more the audience enjoys the interview too. 
Certainly. And I, I think it also really comes down to preparation. I, I, in everything that I do, preparation is paramount to the success of anything that I'm pursuing. And so it's often easier to stay tuned in and focused when I have that background on the person I'm interviewing, when I know their story and can really connect with the answers that they're giving. Well, speaking of your story, Aaron, I know that disc golf and disc dog, these games are a big part of your life. Can you tell us how you got involved with this in the first place? Certainly. So, so there's three different categories here, and I, I have to clarify because it's, sure. it's very common for people outside of the world of disc sports to kind of get them confused. So disc dog is, is what everyone knows. You throw the disc, the dog goes and runs it down. There's disc golf, which is basically like your standard golf. Uh, you're walking and you're throwing it towards a target. And then what I play and where, my, uh, where I've won my national championships is an ultimate frisbee, which is a seven-on-seven field sport that uh, has two end zones, is played at a continuous pace, uh, looks very much like soccer uh, to the untrained eye other than the fact that it's a disc flying around instead of a soccer ball, and uh, involves catching goals, speed, balance, and teamwork to accomplish your goals. So my national championship wasn't Aaron Watson national champion. It was the University of Pittsburgh's men ultimate frisbee team national champions in 2012 and 2013 and uh that is really where i've had to hone mindfulness more than anywhere else because you know it's it's not like i'm playing in uh you know some massive stadium with uh tens of thousands of people but there are big crowds there are high pressure situations and that um that phenomenon of, of the person who has quote unquote has ice in their veins is something that I tried to cultivate in those moments where as a leader, when you're competing with teammates, with friends, with brothers, you are feeding off of the energy that each person is putting off. So if your leader is calm and cool and collected and can talk about the, the months of preparation that you as a team have put into the pursuit that you're, uh, you're chasing, that just has a ripple effect down the team to see a leader who's calm, who's focused, who's in the right frame of mind translates to the entire squad. And do you see yourself as being that type of leader someday? Or are you the leader of the team? I, I, I mean, I, don't, I always have room for improvement, and I, I don't want to come off as arrogant, but I captained the team in those national championships. I've captained the semi-professional team here in Pittsburgh the last two years, the Pittsburgh Thunderbirds. And I think that is perhaps my biggest strength as a leader. I think there's people who are better at maybe uh, coming up with unique strategies or tactics. I think there's people who are probably better at you know putting out practice plans and maybe focusing on player development. But I think the ability to walk the walk and look your teammates in the eye and say, we got this, and to read the energy of your teammates, so someone's down, someone's unfocused, checking in with them, getting them on board, uh, is, is probably my, my biggest strength as a leader at this point in time. Well, let's dig a little deeper on this because I think this is really fascinating. How do you read the energy of your teammates and how do you help them to get on the same level as you so that you can really connect when you're out there playing? 
I, I think it's it's really nonverbal. Um, I, the common trope of I think it's like fifty five percent of communication is is nonverbal whatsoever. Um, so reading the posture, looking into the eyes of the person that you're concerned with, you can see when someone's scared. You can see when someone's hungry. You can see when someone's focused, and it's really paying attention and and being a dedicated observer of the other people. I know that I've taken care of what I need to do. I know I'm prepared and I have that faith in my own preparation and I need to look out into the group and see, all right, this person's sh uh, shaken or even even more so knowing their background and knowing their circumstances. So uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, we had a young player, I'm not gonna name his name, but he was uh, kind of from a tougher background, didn't necessarily have, I mean, a, a, a strong-willed, strong-souled person, but didn't have the kind of emotional regulation that you expect or, or or would expect to have at a really high level performer. He was very easily flustered. And so when we got into those tight situations or when he made a mistake on the field and walked off, I knew without even reading his body language, just from our experience together and situational awareness, that was going to hit him a little bit harder than my other buddy who's I've been in so many battles with and is been knocked down and had to get back up. I knew that he needed that extra attention, that extra pat on the back, positive reinforcements, helpful words in order to get back there and perform at a high level. So really knowing your teammates and spending that time, whether it's uh, talking on the bus on the way to the tournament or grabbing lunch after practice or whatever the situation may be, it's that context that allows you to be aware of what those folks need. You can't just assume that a blanket behavior is going to be the right prescription for every member of your team. Everyone has their unique background and needs a different type of reinforcement. I'm glad you spoke about emotional regulation because that is so important in so many fields, certainly sports, certainly competitive athletics. But, you know, there are a lot of people who say they can achieve that emotional regulation through meditation or something that's some type of meditation. Do you have anything in your life like that? I, I really think it comes down to my workouts being a form of that. Uh, I think that one of the most emotionally taxing things you can do is go, you know, run a track workout or some other workout where you're pushed to a limit and learning about yourself at those limits. A lot of us spend a lot of time kind of right in the center, cruising, um, easygoing, not really putting that extreme stress on yourself. And if you're actively putting that extreme stress on yourself. In my case, it is, you know, we're going to go run 12 400s at, I'm, I'm blanking on the pace that we usually run the 400s at, but at, at an aggressive pace. And afterwards, I'm going to be sucking wind. I might have to lay down afterwards because it's that intense. But after going through that and putting myself through that, I have an incremental more confidence that when we get knocked down in an actual game, in a big game, in a national semifinal, if we're down 8-5 at halftime, we can come back and still win that game because we've been knocked down before and picked ourselves up. Wow. So do you have a coach working with you when you're doing that kind of a grueling preparation? Certainly. The, the, the coaches are there um, encouraging us and pushing us. But the way we actually run those track workouts, which is, is the, one of the funnest things, is we get in three different groups and we're alternating. So if we have, say, uh, 21 guys, it's three groups of seven all running 
um, at different times and one one group runs and as soon as they're done the next group runs and as soon as they're done the next group runs so you have one group that just finished and they're sucking wind they're just trying to prepare for the next 400 that you're about to run but that other group that's had their kind of 60 75 second break and is waiting for their turn they're also screaming at you harder faster you can do it push 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 and that is that ties back into what i was speaking earlier about that bond and that trust and that understanding of your teammates that allows you to give good feedback and to pick each other up because the worst thing and we've all anyone who's watched sporting events has seen this is the team that starts to go down things start to fall apart and then the wheels just come off yeah and that's indicative of a team that hasn't been building together they're not connected because if you really care about someone if you're really uh, tightly knit good friends trust each other then you're not going to communicate to each other in a way that's going to tear each other down. You're going to work to build each other back up when you get knocked down because you'll have practiced doing that before. Yeah, of course you would. So if you were working out just on your own, are you able to motivate yourself in the way that you're motivated by others? Uh, quite frankly, it's it's not as easy. I, I don't think there's any parallel for big group workouts. Um, I, I think that that's just such a fun and important experience. But when I do have to do my workouts on my own, I would say that I'm someone who's very motivated by some other external goals and you know maybe perhaps unhealthily uh, by previous slights that I've received in the past. And it's not like I'm you know carving names into my wall of people I need to take down or something. But you know the the losses that I've sustained in the past are often my fuel for the workouts that I'm doing in the present. And I can call on that pain, that memory of that loss to push me through that last set, through that last rep when the, you know, every, your body's telling you it's time to quit. It's time to be done. Right. So on your podcast, you talk to a lot of authors, entrepreneurs, business people, and I'm wondering if you parallel a lot of these kinds of ways to achieve goals that you've experienced in sport to business and being an author. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think what's, most important to to pull apart for people is that everyone kind of has their own way of doing things. There isn't the one route to success. There isn't the one path to being a best-selling author. I've had a couple of best-selling authors on there, and, and the one says, you know, he was almost a robot in producing 2,000 words every morning before he was allowed to go out and do other business and, and work on anything else. He had to get his 2,000 words out, and then he could get on with his day. And then I had another best-selling author, and what she said is she's very you know different day to day. If she's struck with inspiration, she may lock herself in her study for eight hours and produce 10,000 words and then be burnt out and not do it for the next two days. And during those eight hours when she's locked away, her husband, her children note, do not bother her. Uh, you know, maybe make her some food or something, but she's in the zone. And the reality that everyone kind of has their own flow state, everyone has their own um, work rate and, and way in which they work is something that's really important to realize. Yeah, it is important. And it's, it's really interesting how it relates to mindfulness, because I think the first thing is we have to really truly know ourselves and mindfulness can help us do that. And speaking of knowing ourselves, are you a person who 
kind of thrives on routine. I know you've described the routine of preparing for a game, but what about in your in your regular life apart from sport? I, I would say that that's a big thing that I've had to cultivate in the last year or so. Um, and, and I think that that's a reality for folks who are trying to make something that's theirs or take a more unconventional path. If you're working the nine to five and you always eat dinner at 630 and on Tuesdays I play softball, routine is really easy. It's kind of it's kind of forced upon you. But if you're in a situation where, uh, like for my scenario, I work remotely uh, with a software company, I you know produce my podcast, I record my interviews on Tuesday and Thursday, and a lot of the routines that I'm slowly building and putting together are dependent upon or have been built from necessity. So originally, I was recording a podcast whenever. And I realized that that's incredibly stressful and makes it really hard to plan my weeks out in advance. So I started uh, using a scheduler and saying that I only record on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can pick from a selected number of days or a selected number of times on those days when we can record an interview. And similarly, you know, with Ultimate, we have our practices regularly, but sometimes we have away games, sometimes we have home games. So I think that to some degree, I try to control and try to build routine in. But the reality is, is that I have to acknowledge and accept the fact that if I'm kind of charting my own course, that's not being dictated to me by someone else, it's naturally going to be more variable. And I just have to build that adaptable personality, that resilient mindset into my everyday life. Right. We certainly do have to build that into our lives. And let's go to the next step, which is about habit. You know, I not too long ago read a book called The Power of Habit, which is really a great book and opened my eyes a lot. And of course, the thing is, if you can use habit to help you in your life to get those positive habits going, what are your comments on habit? Yeah, I would just say that if you aren't playing or if you aren't consistently practicing the habits of successful people there's just absolutely no chance that your goals are going to get accomplished or at least they're not going to get accomplished in a timeline that's acceptable to you what you're doing on a day-to-day basis is what's going to make the future version of yourself so i'm always checking in with my diet my exercise because the reality is is that some of these habits are really hard to maintain And you have to check in with those and recognize I'm really not acting like someone who is a high performer right now. I need to get back to my best habits and perform like someone who's worthy of the praise and accomplishments that I want. Right. Well, speaking of diet, tell us about your diet and mindfully, like, what do you eat and so on? That can be a big part of mindfulness. Absolutely. So I am zero soda. I am as low, you know, basically zero on the processed foods, trying to eat whole foods, whether it's fruits, vegetables, meats, eggs, uh, whatever it may be. I'm very big on the end of day smoothie. So I, at the end of the day, when the um, hunger pains are hitting you and you want some sort of salty or sweet snack at the end of the day, I'm big on making the smoothie. It satiates the hunger, is healthy. And that's when the willpower is the lowest. I think it's really easy to have the willpower to eat healthy at the beginning of the day when you're fresh and you're full of energy, but it's at the end of the day when you're at a high risk. So the end of day smoothie is, is one of my keys. And so how do you manage that when you're traveling? 
Uh, it's a little bit harder. It's usually, you know, there's a couple different brands, uh, whether it's at the, um, the grocery store, wherever where we'll stop that I'll, I'll make sure I pick up and have, uh, available, but it's also a little different after a game. Um, there isn't even really a desire to go have a beer or something like that, uh, just cause my body's so worn down. And so I'm, I'm already usually prepared with a cooler having my protein shake or something like that. Right. And so I imagine you're very aware of how your body feels if you did have that beer compared to if you had the smoothie or whatever, because you can really tell how your body reacts to that. Can't you? Yeah, certainly. And let's let's make no mistake. I've I've had the beer after the game before. I think that's a, a part of maturing is is that that's happening uh, significantly less frequently. But I I can definitely very vividly make that comparison. And uh, it's just it, it's really just from a productivity standpoint. Uh, what's the next day going to be like? It's really hard to connect that sometimes where. Uh, the action I'm taking tonight is really mo- most going to affect me tomorrow in my productivity, in my ability to get out of bed and go make things happen. So that's really what's motivating me because I've you know set these new goals. I'm I, I'm still doing the ultimate frisbee, but you can kind of see that the end of that is coming. It's going to be hard to be a professional ultimate frisbee player in my 30s, 40s, and 50s. So with the podcast, with some of the other little projects that I have starting to bubble up, I'm really passionate about the productivity there and accomplishing my goals in that arena and the the drinking or whatever what other uh, whatever other bad habits it may be really detract from that. Well, you're obviously mindful about your future, that's for sure. Aaron, I've worked in bullying prevention for over a decade, and I've seen how the practice of mindfulness can really make a huge difference there. You know, it can help kids understand that it's important not to focus so much on the past and what happened, and important not to focus so much on what may happen in the future. So it really can reduce the incidence of bullying. But I'm wondering if you have a story about bullying that you can share with us where mindfulness might have made a difference? Sure. So so this is uh, not one, I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever shared this story before, Bruce, but uh, I actually was a bully uh, for, a, for a brief period of time back in junior high in seventh grade. Um, I was on the bus. There were, you know, on the bus, that's where kids get into, uh, get, get into a bit of a ruckus. And we, there was one, one kid in particular that we uh, took his shoe and were throwing it around the bus. And as a kid, there's no awareness, or in my case, no awareness, no mindfulness that this was uh, really unpleasant, that we were really um, kind of picking this one guy out and giving him a hard time and ended up uh, with the detention. And my dad actually took me down to his house. Uh, we had a had a talk about it. Talked about how uh, this made him feel, what his experience with it was. Because when I was doing it, I was very self focused. I was thinking, you know, this is funny. This is making other people laugh, and not really reading his face, thinking about how this was affecting him. And I would say that that is was very big and just really pushing a one eighty on my perspective in the realm of bullying. Uh, working it as in in high school to be as inclusive as possible. We had, uh, I would say, you know, there's the different lunch tables, you know, that those can be very clicky and being the lunch table where, uh, hopefully anyone was welcome and everyone felt welcome. There was maybe some good natured ribbing and back and forth. And I can say as, as a part of a sports team, that's always kind of par for the course. You have to be able to both give and receive, 
uh, some 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 uh, good natured ribbing from your teammates, but never taking it to that point where someone feels excluded. Never taking it to that point where someone's really being put down, and it always ending with. Uh, things coming back together. So if you're you're busting someone's balls at the end of the con- at the end of the whatever it may be, it's a pat on the back. It's a hey, you know, we're all having good fun here. And and coming back to reading the people in the group. If you're reading in someone's eyes, if you're reading in their body language, that they're not taking it as a joke, um, and and you're maybe cross the line. That's when it stops. You don't pile on. You don't make things worse. And and really, maybe the 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 counter argument to that is that it's also a, uh, a process of life. You know, I've, I've also received bullying. That's not a completely one-way street. And coming back to the, um, the story of resilience, you have to be able to let some things bounce off you. If one little jab from a friend or from an acquaintance completely cuts your legs out from underneath you, you're not going to be able to handle the real challenges that life throws at you, that life throws at you. A you know a jab from someone is not the hardest punch that you're going to take as your years go by. So there's kind of a balancing act there, but but truthfully, you have to be just less self-focused and better at observing and reading the people around you. And that's something I'm constantly working on. I I can always be better at but I think is important for everyone to realize. Well, thanks for sharing that story with us, Aaron. You know, some of that stuff just has to happen so that we can learn from it, move forward and become a different kind of person. Yeah. And kudos to my dad for, for actually putting my feet to the fire and making me uh, go to the, go to the kid's house, look him in the eyes, talk with his mom and really drive it home. At, at, at the time it felt like, Oh, I'm being punished. But in hindsight, it was, oh, I needed to learn this lesson. I hadn't learned it for whatever reason. And my dad always says there's an easy and a hard way to learn something. I could have just been told, don't bully people. It hurts their feelings. Don't treat them, you know, treat other people with respect. And for whatever reason, it didn't get through my thick noggin. (laughs) So I had to go come face to face with it. And that was so important for me. And, you know, as uh, I've been a camp counselor now for many years, um, I see that happening and I'm always quick to act on it and, and handle it in a way that they'll walk away with a lesson and not just stop it. It's the, the classic give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach him to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. If you're teaching people how to actually be respectful, how to be mindful of the feelings of others, that's what's actually going to translate into long-term results. Yes, yes, good advice. Aaron, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced you in your mindfulness? I would actually say my coach at the University of Pittsburgh, Nick Kazmarek. Um, He coached us to the two national championships. He actually coached me a little bit in high school and after but he is someone who, he is a teacher at a junior high and he is constantly thinking about context for other people. So what is this person's background? Uh, how is that affecting their ability to absorb what they're taking in? And if, if you're okay with me taking a quick digression, sure, Bruce. Sure, sure. Um, we had a player on our team who was uh, national born uh, Chinese mm-hmm. and his first language was Mandarin Chinese. And what we found out after being on the year, on the team for two years is that everything we said, our strategies, our plays, our tactics, 
everything that he heard, he was translating into Mandarin in his head before understanding it. Wow. And that type of understanding, because he was always the guy who's like, it kind of seems like he doesn't really get what we're doing. It kind of seems like he's a little out to lunch. And then when you get that piece of information, it just clicks. You're like, oh, of course he didn't understand what (laughs) we were saying. Of course he was having trouble with some of these concepts. Because we say it once, assuming everyone's speaking in our native language, English, and then they're getting it. And from then on, it was we speak to the group about it. And then there's an extra time afterwards. People, you know, go into the drill or go into what we're about to do. And then we talk about it with him a little bit more, just double down on his understanding. And you saw a serious improvement in his performance once he was just getting the attention and the communication that he needed. Wow, great story. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? I know that you mentioned a little bit about that already, but just kind of sum it up. Uh, just emotional regulation and, and trying to be that cold-blooded warrior, the, the, the player who has ice in their veins and isn't phased by a big crowd of bright lights. Uh, and that's what we have to do in life sometimes, too. That's true. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. I, I love the breathing thing. I was actually thinking about that this morning as I went on a walk. Um, walking, we were talking about meditation before, walking is a is probably where I do the closest thing to some real hardcore meditating. But taking slow, deep breaths, whether I'm stressed out, something goes wrong, something falls apart, uh, taking the deep breaths to kind of get some perspective on the challenges I'm facing, but also just to help regulate my own emotions. They're still happening and get back to a more rational, focused state. Right. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? Um, I don't know. I, I guess this would be related to mindfulness is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, Bruce. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever read it or heard I of it. I have. I have. It is It is absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's about the creative struggle. It's about managing your, I don't want to say internal demons, but he calls it the resistance and, and, mm-hmm. and all the things that stop you from creating the things you want to create, being the person you want to be. And I just, I love that book. Me too. Me too. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? Um, so from a productivity and efficiency standpoint, I'm, I'm sure someone else has mentioned this before, Bruce, but the Pomodoro app right. is, uh, is a huge one. Take 25 minutes on, five minutes off, uh, whether I'm editing episodes of my show, writing, trying to get through emails because they're always coming in. Um, it's always an important part of the process and it helps me be efficient and still stay fresh for a full work day. So what advice would you give a person who's new to this idea of mindfulness and getting focused this way and they want to start using it in their life? I would, I would challenge them to take six great breaths every single day. Um, and so what that means to me, a great breath is five seconds in, probably through your nose, but through whatever's comfortable, five seconds out. And if you take six great breaths, that's 10 seconds each, that's one minute out of your day. And a lot of people come up with BS, oh, I don't have time for this or that or the other thing. You have one minute in your day. You can't even make an argument that you don't have one minute for six great breaths. But if you take six great breaths and then take stock of how you feel immediately after that, you'll be amazed. And before you know it, you'll be taking 18, 24, 30 great breaths a day. 
Uh, great advice. And, you know, I really appreciate talking with you, Aaron, because you really are mindful. I love what you talked about reading people's body language. And that takes mindfulness just to be focused in on that and pay attention and that kind of thing. And and also about not judging others and thinking about what others are going through and so on. So you've really given us some good insight today. So Mindful Tribe, I hope you've really appreciated what Aaron has had to say because it's really gold. So Aaron, tell us this, how can we learn more about what you do and maybe connect with you? Sure, sure, sure. So my number one way to connect is Twitter at AaronWatson59. Uh, But I know that people out there are on all different Facebook or um, different social media platforms. Uh, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Snapchat, I'm on Facebook. Pretty easy to find Aaron Watson. Unfortunately, there's a country singer also named Aaron Watson, and he's relatively big. So I'm maybe the second biggest Aaron Watson. Okay, well, we'll connect with that. And just just to remind everybody, tell us about your podcast again. Sure, Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Uh, Great, similar length interviews to the ones you'll uh, get here with Bruce, but Mine are a little more focused on the very like the story, the narrative, the journey of individual writers, entrepreneurs, um, other folks who are just doing something interesting, kind of an uncharted path and elaborating on how they made that happen and some of their tips for success and also getting real about some of their headaches and struggles along the way. Right. Yeah, I know you deal with their fears and their challenges and that's all fascinating because we can learn from that for sure. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us today, Aaron. It has been just great. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And if, if you're all right with it, Bruce, I'd love to get some feedback uh, on the six, second, six Great Breaths Challenge. So I don't know if you prefer Twitter or somewhere else, Bruce, but if they want to connect with both you and me and let us know how the six uh, great breaths are affecting them, I'd love to hear about it. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, so Mindful Tribe, you heard that. Let us know. Let us know through Twitter or through email, you can go to my show notes and connect there. So any of those ways would be great. So have a good rest of your day, Aaron. Thanks. You too, Bruce. Okay. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. Check out our show notes for every episode at mindfulnessmode.com. On our next episode, I have a great conversation with a wordsmith. And wow, I haven't interviewed a wordsmith before, I don't think. Her name is Stacy Brookman, and she's an awesome storyteller and teaches others how to use words mindfully and effectively. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.